Santa Aurelia LLC pays for this show. The views expressed by the hosts and guests on Inside Track are their own and may not reflect those of KVOI, but they should. People try to put us to just because we get around Talking about my generation Things they do look awful Talking about my generation Hope I die before I get old Hello, Insiders, and a very pleasant good afternoon to you. Wherever you may be, this is your host, Bruce Ash, along with... Ed Wilkinson. Bob Wells. Coming to you live from the luxurious Essential Pest Control Studios located in the KVOI Broadcast Complex here in Tucson, Arizona, welcoming you to a special edition of Inside Track. Producer Tom also joins us. He's running the board. He's taking your calls, and he's also inviting our guests uh, on the show. We invite your questions or comments for our guests at 520-790-2040, which are relevant to the topic. Eb? Hey, Bruce and I want to remind you to please support our great sponsors, Tucson Iron and Metal Retail, 520-209-1576. Jerry has, uh, I swear to God. Jerry, J- Jamie, J- Yeah, J- his close friends call him Jerry. <laughs> Jamie has loads of great steel products at a low, low price for your home, office, or ranch. Drop by the yard Monday through Friday, 8 to 4.30, and Saturdays from 8 to 1. Corazon Cabinets, 520-488-2266. Hey, when did we start putting in the area code? When they changed, when they did the, the whole 911 thing, or actually the 811 thing. Man. Call Joy or Allie to design your luxury cabinets for your kitchen and bath at prices you will love. I'll take it out if you like. I hate it. Well, let's take it out. Okay, fine. Let's have a vote. All it's in favor? All well, in favor. All right. Everybody passes. <laughs> and then uh, Essential Pest Control. Call the Essential Pest Team at 886-3029. His professional crews will keep you safe from bugs, termites, varmints, and even weeds. Also supporting Inside Track is my co-host, the aforementioned Eb Wilkinson from Wilkinson Wealth Management. Eb is dedicated to help you retire comfortably and remain comfortably retired. Call Eb at 777-1911. Hey, did I tell you that Eb is running for the National NRA Board? Please vote for him if you're qualified to vote in an NRA election. Eb and I support all of our great locally owned family-run businesses who support our show. So should you. Our special guests on Inside Track today, uh, we're talking about the border and and national security. Um, Bob Wells, friend of the show, Bob Wells, U.S. Navy captain, retired, and national security advisor to Dick Cheney, uh, and former assistant to President George W. Bush for Western Hemisphere Affairs, Dan Fisk, who is currently a fellow at the Vandenberg Coalition. He focuses on Latin America, human rights, foreign aid, and policy. Um, Thanks for joining us, gentlemen. Dan, are you there? I'm here. So, Bruce, thanks you and Eb and uh, Bob. Good to reconnect. Good to reconnect there, Dan. Hey, are you as young looking in person as you are in that? It looked like your fraternity photo for the Vandenberg group. Uh, well, or you just have a young others. looking face. Yeah, I, I leave that to others. I, um, <laughs> uh, at some point, it'll all catch up with me. Uh, so. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us, gentlemen. There's quite a lot of brain power here, uh, so a special greeting to you, Dan. Before I turn over to my co-host, believe it or not, the year I graduated from high school in 1970, I actually took a course titled Latin American Problems. I swear. Uh, Mr. Black taught it. 
And um, it seems like we've never stopped talking about problems in Latin America for Marxists running uh, South American countries, election fraud claims in, in Brazil, and, and now this uh, AMLO attempt to grab power in Mexico. Dan, you've been around this for a long time. Tell us how different the problems are today that we're having in Latin America. You know, um, the, the sad point is, is a lot that you learned um, back in that period and a lot that, say, Bob and I would have dealt with uh, when we were in government. It is, to use the Yogi Berra phrase, it is deja vu all over yeah. in some regards. I mean, there are some memos that probably Bob, I know that I would have written for President Bush that, frankly, you could just almost change the date. And in some cases, it's literally the same players. So, I mean, there's been a lot of good news out of the hemisphere, but that's been clearly balanced against some very sad news and continuing troubling news. So uh, I'm going to turn the ship over to Bob here in just a second and and Ed Wilkinson, but is it is it lack of attention or is it sort of the the way that we viewed Latin America through the years, uh, sort of a paternalistic sort of an approach to them that's created this really the same problems that still exist today in the 21st century that existed in the 20th century? Well, I, I, it's again, a good question, something I've actually given some thought to. I mean, I think it's a couple of things. Uh, first, uh, for the United States itself, uh, we tend to give attention to Latin America or to the Western Hemisphere episodically, and it seems to be almost always bad news and something reaches a critical point. Within the hemisphere, though, I have to say, in a lot of cases, because a lot of this does rest with the citizens of those countries, just like a lot of issues in our own country rest with us as citizens of the U.S., but in a lot of cases, people have been sold easy solutions, and those easy solutions aren't there. And unfortunately now, whether it's AMLO or even looking south, there's a set of leaders who are frankly demagogues, um, who believe in centralized power, but in a lot of cases, they've actually been voted into power because people thought they were going to get something uh, and that they're not getting. And so Mexico is going to be a test of this in, in 2024. Can the Mexican voters, the citizens, change the course of where that country's going? Well, Bob, you've got the con along with the ebb. Uh, feel free to flow on from here. Well, when we in, uh, thank you very much there, uh, Bruce. Uh, Dan, when we were in government together, as you just mentioned, uh, and your, your focus with President Bush was... Uh, on developing that new relationship with uh, Mexico and Canada under that security prosperity partnership we had. And uh, most recently, President Biden had the meeting in Mexico City with uh, uh, AMLO and also the Canadian president. And after that meeting, uh, which would seem to go quite well, uh, all of a sudden there's 150,000 people in the streets uh, in Mexico, in Mexico City. And, uh, and you could see, as you'd mentioned, uh, promises probably made by AMLO during his election uh, to the presidency, which lasts six years, but he'll be coming up for re-election. But what are those people crying out for? You mentioned that uh, those expectations, but what are, this, what are the current citizens of Mexico in the streets of Mexico City crying out for with the president? Well, what you're seeing in Mexico, I think, uh, Bob, are, are, and for the listeners, a couple of things. First, we've got to remember that the president of Mexico, um, who we all call AMLO, it's uh, not to be disrespectful, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, he goes by his uh, initials. Um, he, by the way, maintains a lot of a strong popularity. The last public opinion polls that do have credibility show him with 60% support across broad segments of the Mexican citizenry. 
That, though, is juxtaposed against the circumstance in which he has made efforts to weaken one of the key success stories of Mexico over the last 20 years, and that's the National Electoral Institute. It has guaranteed to Mexicans fair elections. It has been very, very um, strong in that regard. It's been uh, Mexicans have endorsed it and supported it. It's been uh, recognized internationally. But AMLO and his party, which control the Congress, uh, have taken efforts to weaken that, to cut its budget, uh, to reduce its staff. And there are serious questions that going into 2024, that the Electoral Institute will not be in a position to ensure free, fair, credible elections. Um, because in a lot of cases, uh, in Mexico, by the way, they have a national electoral system, unlike ours, where the states run elections. In Mexico, it's national. But one of the consequences of what AMLO has done is it's going to turn over to the states, in some cases, or what it looks like right now, the ability to manage elections. And that's actually bad news because 21 of the 32 Mexican states are controlled by AMLO's political party, which is his personal vehicle. It is not a political party that is built on a broad institutional basis. It's a political party built around a personality. And he wants to ensure that his successor, since he cannot run again, that his successor wins that election, I'll say, by hook or crook. And it's not PAN, it's not PRI, it's Morena. That's that's his party. Correct. That's his party. But his model is the old institutional revolutionary party, the one-party state that Mexico had for 70 years until that ended in literally the year 2000. But he wants to restore that, not the PRI, not, as it was known, the PRI, not that, but his party, Moreno, which he controls. Again, it is a personal instrument that he controls. There was an article, this is Eb, by the way, there was an article in The Atlantic a couple of days ago that said the Mexican president is destroying the country from the inside out. Any thoughts? Yeah, um, that's a very good article. I'll I'll refer it or make reference to it and reinforce what you said, Eb, about uh, for your listeners. Um, I have read it. I agree with much of it. There's no doubt about it that what's happening within Mexico is internal. It's not an external factors. It's not U.S. dictating to the country. It is a matter that AMLO wants to centralize authority in Mexico City. He does not want independent governmental agencies. And to that extent, one of the things that is worrisome, not just the attack on the National Electoral Institute, but that he has put more and more authority into the Mexican military, actually taking authority away from independent law enforcement entities, centralizing the coercive instruments of the state um, under his leadership and making people, making those senior leadership actually loyal to him. So there is, again, another disturbing trend that is happening in that country in terms of the erosion of the progress Mexico's made over the last 24 years, or 23 years, frankly. One of the more important uh, vectors that uh, you helped shape, and that is uh, uh, the Merida Initiative back in 2006 with President uh, Calderon, with President Bush, and looking at some of the challenges that uh, Mexico was having with the cartels at that particular time. Do you think that model could work again uh, within President Obrador's administration, uh, or why did he move away uh, from the policy itself of confronting the cartels and giving them a hug or trying to bring them into the 
into the Mexican culture more closely. Yeah, no, you made a your reference there to hugs because he said deal with the cartels by hugs, not bullets, um, because President Felipe Calderon was willing to challenge the cartels as you need to. You need to challenge them with force. You cannot let them become what they in some cases have been. They are literally states within the state of Mexico, within the larger country of Mexico. Um, a lot of speculation on why AMLO has done that. One is as simple as his corruption in his own government. The second is if the U.S. is in favor of it, he's not going to be in favor of it and, mm. and against it. Um, and also, I just think, a, a, frankly, I'll just say a naive belief that somehow you deal with these grotesquely violent criminal gangs that you reason with them and you don't because they only fear, frankly, one of three things. Well, of three things, losing Led. their money, their lives and their freedom. That's it. Um, and really, they worry about losing their lives and their freedom because money they can replace. Yeah. Hey, Dan, so, uh, we're up against yes. a break. Hang with, with yep. us just for just a few minutes, please. please. Uh, Mr. Yeah. Producer, let's go to our first break. You're listening to Inside Track on KVOI, Trusted Local News and Talk. When we return, we're going to continue speaking with national security experts Dan Fisk and Robert Wells. No station flipping. We'll be right back. Jamie Kipper and her father, Gary Kipper, from Tucson Iron and Metal. What are they going to see when they come through the gates? So when they come on in, they'll see our building up front. People have free reign to then go out and look in the yard. So it's not a typical scrapyard with a ton of big machinery. We have a couple of forklifts around, but that's about it just to help move material. So when you come in, it's all organized by material, whether it's square tubing, angle iron, roofing, and then there is a pile in the back, which is still organized and easy to get through, but that's stuff that comes over from the scrap. So we're unique in that we get stuff in from the scrap, which a lot of artists and people will like or reuse, whether it's a sink that someone needs for their house, we sell literally anything made of metal. Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. Call 209-1579. Stop by the yard. 701 East 36th Street. Open Monday through Saturday. Essential Pest Control leaves bugs belly up with science. You mean you don't use a shoe? No, we use the latest in technology and innovation to eliminate bugs, termites, weeds, and more. No spray cans and lighters? None of that. Only solutions that target insect biology, using chemistry to help protect the environment, people, and their pets. Huh. Essential Pest Control leaves bugs belly up. Call 886-3029 or visit EssentialPest.com. This is Ed Wilkinson of Wilkinson Wealth Management reminding you that every good and excellent thing stands moment by moment on the razor's edge of danger and must be fought for, including getting out of debt, building your wealth, and protecting your God-given right. We manage money for gun owners. Let us help you retire comfortably and remain comfortably retired. Call me at 777-1911 or WilkinsonWealthMGMT.com. Welcome back to Inside Track. We invite you to call in to 790-2040 on the live line during today's chat with Dan Fisk and Bob Wells. And let producer Tom know if you have any relevant question for our guests. Uh, we'll continue the interviews from here. Bob, go ahead. Uh, thank you very much, Bruce. And, and Dan, uh, there was a recent article in the Wall Street Journal uh, this week from former Attorney General uh, Bill Barr that talked about... Uh, Ways, ways forward with regard to confronting the cartels in Mexico. You've set it up quite nicely with regard to uh, the different presidential administrations in Mexico and then where we're at right now with President Obrador and then looking at the future election. 
the cartels are powerful, no doubt. And one of the key uh, issues concern for our listeners, as well as uh, broadly in our country, uh, is the border and looking at the flow of drugs and then the role of the cartels. Uh, Mr. Barr had suggested that uh, we should do three things, that we should uh, support congressional action, and that's underway with the joint resolution. Uh, we should also uh, take on the cartels. Uh, with your previous experience with uh, Merida and also looking at uh, uh, calling the terror, or the uh, cartels a narco-terrorist group or designating them as such, uh, do you agree uh, with Mr. Barr? Uh, what's the timing that could be uh, possible to take on the cartels uh, on the U.S. side? read the former attorney general's uh, article. Um, also, I read his book and went back and re-reviewed his section that he wrote about the uh, fighting the, the cartels and drug traffickers during his uh, tenure, most recent tenure as attorney general um, and all that. So uh, first, I'll say as a matter of constitutional law, um, I think what Congress is doing is totally within its powers on, on the resolution. I will, you know, raise the question. I do think it's fair to think about, you know, uh, one thing that one learns in policy is sometimes best of intentions have unintended consequences. And the cartels, no doubt, are forced within Mexico. They are well-armed, they are well-organized, and they are well-financed. Um, so they do represent a significant threat to the Mexican state and, frankly, to us, by extension. And as we, as a society, feel them with the with the with, with drug trafficking. But I do think we need to be careful, and I hope members of Congress and their good intentions don't find ourselves in a position of us being perceived to declare war against Mexico. And so I do think while the bill, I've read it, does not say that, it can be easily mispresented, mm. misrepresented. And I do think that's a worrisome um, trend because even though most Mexicans, the average Mexican doesn't want to deal with criminals any more than the rest of us do. But to make this into something more that's a state-by-state state, uh, conflict, I think, has repercussions that is actually not going to be helpful for us. There's clearly a lot more we can do. AMLO has weakened that. Um, under his tenure, the Mexican Congress voted to restrict what um, the parameters for U.S. law enforcement in Mexico, especially the DEA, mm -hmm. can do. They were already under some pretty um, strict uh, limitations or even limited more so. There's, again, more we can do with uh, information. Um, there's more we can do with, again, I think, um, making sure that the Mexicans have this uh, the ability and finding those institutions where we can work with them. That was the key to success in Colombia. It wasn't us doing things unilateral. And I think that's a piece that's missing from the former attorney general's um, very well argued piece in the Wall Street Journal. But, you know, don't we can't forget that lesson. We need the people of the country, Mexico, to be allies, not by, again, the best of intentions, making them um, by default, allies of the bad guys. How much support do you think AMLO's getting from the cartels, if any? You know, I, that's a really good question, and it's hard to say. I think, well, first of all, we know at the state level, the cartels can influence elections. They kill candidates. Or if they don't kill them, they threaten them to have them drop out. We've also seen, of course, they kill uh, journalists. They, they, yeah, they kill, kill government the officials. Yeah. yeah. So there's no doubt that they can be an influence. And as a Mexican politician, you know you have certain parameters. On one level, I think the best that can be said is, and best is what can be said, it's not, a, it's not best, it's not good, is that, frankly, AMLO has operated on the 
premise that I'm going to let you, the drug cartels, do your business. You stay out of my business. I won't bother you. You don't bother me. And that's, by the way, not unique to this Mexican government. Prior to Felipe Calderon, that was basically the modus vivendi of other Mexican governments. Um, And that does present challenges for us. Um, I think the thing, if I can say, that's missing from the article and having thought about drug policy for a long time, you don't do Latin American and don't think about it, is we do need to invest resources on the demand side. We do need to go after because it's not the cartels are taking American money and they're taking American arms. And Eb, I would say, given your work on the Second Amendment, which we need, and it's you know it's, it's, it's one of the Bill of Rights. The fact of the matter is, is that that is a big issue. Arms flows and money flows from the U.S. from north to south, and that's something that needs more work on our part, I think, in addition to trying to find allies in Mexico that can help us take out the cartels, including by the use of violence. I have a, the opportunity to go to Mexico quite frequently, driving across the southern border, and I think only once in the last five years have I been screened on the U.S. side going into Mexico by the U.S. And when I cross over the border, uh, I get screened on the Mexican side probably 10 to 15 percent of the time. And that's just a very light, where are you going, you know, what do you have in the car? Are you bring in fruit. Uh, it's never been a thing where they've the Mexicans have said, "Are you bringing in drugs or money or guns?" Uh, but uh, I think the screening going south needs to be substantially ramped up. Thoughts? I would, yeah, I would echo that based on my experience. You can't invest resources, uh, Dan, as you know, without uh, good policy coordination. You don't know uh, what you don't know, as Secretary Rumsfeld used to say. Uh, President Bush, after 9-11, and President Biden just recognized the 20th anniversary of the passage of, uh, or the establishment of the Department of Homeland Security. You recall during our service together, we we had a Homeland Security Council. We had a Homeland Security Advisor, uh, Fran Townsend. Uh, We've forgotten about that. We still have some of the organic organizations, reorganizations with the Coast Guard. Uh, what could we do better? What could we do to support the president in homeland security policy so that we can invest resources on the demand side? Well, that, Bob, I mean, you know, again, from your experience, and, and I'm assuming you've got a good number of listeners who themselves have had some period of U.S. government um, service, know that it comes down to resources and then how you organize for those. Frankly, I'll put it this way. I think we spend more time sending John Kerry around the world talking about climate than we do dealing with the real issue that is life and death of the drug trafficking that's targeted at the U.S. And so without being, again, dismissive or disrespectful towards, um, uh, I guess, Ambassador Kerry, uh, the fact of the matter is that the government needs to be organized to deal with the wealth of information we have, with the resources that we do have. I mean, the U.S. government has some pretty phenomenal assets and ability to carry out capacity uh, capacities. Um, and we need to have those organized because if it's disparate, you're going to have, well, you're going to have what you see now. You're going to see disorganization, which knowing that we've already got an obstacle to overcome in Mexico, we need not create those obstacles on ourselves internally in the U.S. Hey, uh, Dan, we've got a call uh, coming in. Gary from Bisbee. Gary, go ahead. Yes, sir. Thank you for taking my call. One of the questions I have is, 
Hey, Gary, could you get off the speaker? It's giving us a lot of feedback here. Okay, very good. Um, I'd like to know, where is the CIA in in all of this? I know that you were stating a state-by-state activity to put this in control. I mean, we've... I remember the 80s and the 70s when the CIA was part of a lot of stuff internationally and through the Monroe Doctrine for what it's worth. I'm just wondering why or if it's just so hush-hush that they can't talk about it. Do you know yourself uh, from your resources if they're doing any kind of collaboration with the Mexican government to help them? If Dan tells you he's going to have to kill you. deal with Mexico's problem financially. Um, that's my question, though. What what do you know about CIA involvement? Yeah, um, I mean, first of all, my information on that would not be up to date, um, and it's not. Um, but it is a matter that, again, I want to be careful here what I say, because, again, going back to this, U.S. government has a lot of capabilities that it can deploy in support of other governments and, and frankly, in support of other government entities. And so uh, while what we would see now mostly is what the CIA does on the analytical side, which is overt, and, you know, you can get on and see kind of the reports on international narcotics, um, I at least have no doubt that they are uh, involved in some useful way. But again, it's a matter of it, we don't talk about it. I, I do think that, you know, again, if you look at a, 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 a getting more entities involved, it's not going to be just one or the other. Of course, the DA, DEA will tell you that they should be the lead agencies and, and mm-hmm. assets and, and resources should go to them. And I totally agree with that. But it needs to be it, it's not just one agency. And that's one thing that sometimes does happen in our government um everyone will be shocked to hear this it's like gambling in casablanca right is that sometimes yeah. agencies trip over themselves um because they want the moment of glory for whatever it's going to be the capture of a drug kingpin a seizure of a shipment or a takedown of a money laundering operation so you know that's the other reason to go back to, to bob's point which is you got to have someone who's coordinating all that so you maximize it and hopefully you minimize maximize what you can get agencies to do, and then you minimize, minimize the friction that just is inherent with any bureaucratic structure. Bob? Just a quick point for Gary. Also, Dan, uh, we do have uh, established relationships through our U.S. Northern Command in Colorado with uh, Mexico. We work with Mexico, and uh, particularly the uh, Mexican Armed Forces, and uh, their favorite service to work with in the United States uh, is the U.S. Marine Corps, just because of their professionalism. Hoorah. So that's... Uh, but, you know, the CIA is, is part of the total uh, whole-of-government approach working with Mexico, and uh, we want that positive relationship so we can cooperate, and they do send their representatives. We also have uh, Justice, Justice Department uh, consultations in Mexico City and also in Washington, D.C., uh, with the law enforcement uh, and the justice representatives uh, from the Mexican government. Dan, we're, we're getting close to the end of our time. Um, Fellas, uh, where, where do you want to follow up from here? Well, Gary, do you have a follow-up, or are you good? follow-up. If we engage the cartels, do you have a fear that the cells that are present in, in California and other established cells of the cartels in America would cause an explosive amount of, cry, uh, of heat throwback? 
that one of the unintended consequences? Thank you, Gary. Yeah, if I can offer on that, that's a very good question. I do something one should not dismiss, but I do think that the lesson that the Kiki Camarena tragedy conveyed to the Mexican cartels are specifically, are there are certain thresholds, or I'll use the phrase red lines, there are certain red lines you don't cross. And it's one thing to sell drugs in the United States. It's another thing. And they do engage in violence here. No one should dismiss that. But if you think about how they engage violence, they they don't do it as terms of an attack on certain institutions or entities. I mean, and so, you know, I do think that if they were to do that and we have information, I think then the gloves come off and they know that they would much rather deal with a weak Mexican state than they would because they know the U.S., the U.S., whether it's a federal level or state yet level, will respond. And I'm on that one. They're not fools. They're not stupid people. Um, they're corrupt. They're violent. They're ugly people. But they know that there are certain boundaries they need to stay within while they're doing their criminal business. Dan, we've got two minutes left. Um, Representative uh, Dan Crenshaw and Michael Waltz have proposed a joint resolution giving the president authority to use the U.S. military against these cartels. Uh, and, uh, you know, we believe this step is necessary and put the, puts the focus where it needs to be. That being said, why is the president so light on these people and not wanting to do that? Well, something I, I'll go back to what I said earlier. We, we don't want to be perceived that we're declaring war on Mexico. And again, great deal of respect for those two members of, of, of Congress, um, you know, and what they're trying to do. But I do I, I'm having been in those positions um, in, in federal government and making recommendations to a president. Um, you, you do need to think about what are the consequences, especially unintended consequences of that. And let me just really quickly, and I don't mean to hit a, a nerve here Ed, with, with your, your background, but, you know, Mexicans see arms trafficking as a threat to their country. We would be outraged if all of a sudden they passed a law that said, you know, the Mexican military can go after American gun stores if they're shown to be shipping arms south. So I think we want to really think through kind of the consequences of this. And that's where I think that I realize we're short on time. But we've got to be smart in how we deal with the cartels. And I'm not sure overt American military presence is what is going to get us there. It may feel good for a moment. We may kill some bad guys, but as we've seen, again, going back to other experiences with these type of entities, they sip, they can reform, re-engage, and come back. And there I think that, again, we, we need to think about what are the full range of potential consequences in this instance. Thanks so much for joining us today, Dan. Great, uh, great visit with us. I hope we can have you back on again soon. And um, we're going to have to go ahead and take our, our last break of the day. When we return, ASU lecturer Adrian Brettel joins us to talk about Brexit and U.K. politics. You're listening to, you're listening to Inside Track. We'll be right back. I'm proud to welcome my good friends at Tucson Iron and Metal Retail to Inside Track as an advertiser. Jamie Kipper and her staff are conservation experts. They sell round and square steel tubing, metal plate and roofing materials, as well as new and used steel, aluminum, and stainless steel to ranchers, artists, 
interior designers, roofers, and do-it-yourselfers just like all of the listeners here. Tucson Iron and Metal Retail is open Monday through Fridays, 8 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. and Saturdays, 8 a.m. to noon. Tucson Iron and Steel Retail, 701 East 36th Street. Call 520-209-1576 or go to tucsonironretail.com. And when you do call, mention this ad and receive an additional 10% discount on their already great prices. Essential Pest Control leaves bugs belly up with science. You mean you don't use a shoe? <sighs> no, we use the latest in technology and innovation to eliminate bugs, termites, weeds, and more. No spray cans and lighters? None of that. Only solutions that target insect biology, using chemistry to help protect the environment, people, and their pets. Huh. Essential Pest Control leaves bugs belly up. Call 886-3029 or visit EssentialPest.com. This is Eb Wilkinson of Wilkinson Wealth Management. Are you letting rising inflation interfere with your ammo budget? Don't do that. Let us show you how to buy the same goods and services 20 years from now as you can today. We manage money for gun owners and we can guide you to retire comfortably and remain comfortably retired. Call me, Eb Wilkinson, at 777-1911 or WilkinsonWealthMGMT.com. Welcome back to Inside Track. We're going to go in a slightly different direction for the rest of our time together today. We're switching continents and going easterly to the British Isles. Our next guest is Dr. Adrian Brettel from that school up north in Maricopa County. Dr. Brettel is an author of the book, Colossal Ambitions, Confederate Planning for a Post-Civil War World. We're not talking about the Civil War today, but one day, Dr. Brettel, I want to have you on the show to talk about that book. Welcome to the show. Good afternoon, and I'd be delighted to do that. Yeah, I bet you would. I'd be I'd be happy to hear it. I think our our listeners would also. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak took charge of a vexing question earlier this week on the lingering issue affecting trade with Northern Ireland uh, and Brexit. Briefly, tell us what he did and how is this thing going to turn out? There are there votes to take and so on, or is this is this deal already made? Right. Well, this is the so-called Windsor framework announced on Monday between Ursula von der Leyen, the president of the EU Commission, and Sunak. And it's to resolve an anomaly left behind by Brexit. But what the deal does is it makes life easier in the province of Northern Ireland. The European Union will stop inspecting British goods that are heading from Great Britain into the European single air economic area, the so-called single market that includes Northern Ireland, it will stop inspecting those goods. And these will be called Green Channel. And it will focus instead on British goods passing through Northern Ireland to the Republic. Secondly, in a significant EU concession, the policing authority of the single market, the European Court of Justice, will stand back on its regulatory role in Northern Ireland. Instead, an EU-UK-Irish authority will take over. Thirdly, new European laws passed that apply in the single market. These will continue to apply in Northern Ireland when they relate to the single market, but the EU has accepted a British right of veto. And Sunak, in turn, has said that this will be a process where a minority in the 
local assembly in Northern Ireland called the Spitzical Stormont Break, a third of them oppose it. That plus a UK Commons a parliamentary approval will mean that we can veto laws. So that's, that's the upshot of the framework. In terms of next steps, which is the second part of your question, um, we, it's a framework. So technically, Britain doesn't have, the British Parliament doesn't have to vote on it. But Sunak is going to have a sort of indicative vote. We don't quite know when. The other party who are create the other sort of element of consent will be EU countries, but they should rubber stamp it. But the other area of consent will be Northern Ireland, in particular the, the leading party representing the Unionist Protestant community in Northern Ireland, who have a Democratic Unionist Party. And their approval is important to, in order to reactivate the local assembly and get the Northern Ireland pol- local government working again. They may not have a vote either, but they will sort of indicate their consent, if you will, by agreeing to go back into power sharing in Northern Ireland. Hmm. Adrian, this is hardly the Westminster Hour panel on BBC Four <laughs> that I listen to all the time. But, but let's talk more about our British cousins' politics and bring in my co-hosts, Eb Wilkinson and Robert Wells. Uh, fellas, you know, it seems like there's just so many different balls up in the air with respect to the UK. You know, you've had, I mean, the economy's in the crapper. Uh, there's this deal that's going on. It's the Prime Minister of the Month Club. Uh, yeah, I mean, who 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 even remembers Liz Truss at this point in time? I mean, I think she was prime minister for like nineteen days, um, and and then Adrian, there's there's also the issue. I miss Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> well, don't we all? Don't we? Don't we all? <laughs> uh, so so then there's the other issue about Scots, the Scots who want to leave the UK. Um, so Nicola uh, Sturgeon resigned. Uh, her position as minister, what's going to happen in in Scotland, and how does this all kind of play together? Because it seems, I'm an outsider, but it seems like it might might, might really all fit together. It is, and it, yes, we will trample the strands, but entirely separately, Nicola Sturgeon, the, who was only a few months ago, such as politics and how, how, how events matter. She was a colossus. Yeah. She's the first minister of Scotland, leader of the Scottish National Party. But she entered into a dead end in trying to get another independence referendum because that required the consent of the Westminster Parliament and the Supreme Court backed that up. So she could no longer get a referendum And then, so looking for an issue, searching around, she then moved towards uh, trying to pick a fight with London, with the Westminster Parliament, on the so-called transgender issue of allowing 16 to 18-year-olds. And that was her undoing, wasn't it? That was her undoing. It led to a backlash. 16 to 18-year-olds could basically rewrite their birth certificates. Okay, now this she she wanted a fight with London because this was part of UK equalities law legislation passed by Parliament. 
but it, she got into a huge backlash. She, you know, like, I mean, she couldn't define what a woman was. Uh, there were these nauseating interviews, and she, she resigned as a shock. Now they now it was a shock. It was a total shock, but now the Scottish Nationalist Party are in hustings. They're three candidates, one a continuity candidate with her, called Yusuf, and he's the health minister. There's uh, Katie Forbes, who is the sort of change candidate, who's the, the current sort of treasury secretary. And then there's a sort of all-out-for-independence candidate called Ash Regan. But I think the, uh, but the takeaway from this is that the Scottish National Party is entering into, you know, and it's the most pre-U, pre, pro-EU party, is entering into a period of internal disturbance, more like the Conservative Party, and that the chances of Scottish independence are receding by the day. But the biggest beneficiary of this turmoil within the Scottish Nationalist Party is probably going to be Labour, because the natural, but the part of the Scottish National Party coalition the largest portion of it was former Labour voters who were then so hooked in in the single-issue party of pursuing independence, but with a progressive edge like on those gender issues. Those voters may well go back to Labour and give and will enable a... Well, it makes a Labour majority much more likely in 2024 than it, than it would be if Labour had to win with English votes alone. That's a tough ask for Labour to do against the Conservatives. But if they can get 20 to 30 constituencies in Scotland, it makes the pathway to a majority much easier for Labour. What do you see as the outcome from that? Well, in terms of Brexit, I mean, you know, which is one of your questions, I mean, you know, the Labour Party leader is Sakir Starmer, who is remaking himself as a moderate, having been very radical. Some of you may, may be familiar. Well, compared to Labour Jeremy went, Corbyn, anybody's, anybody's Jeremy, rather mild. Jeremy, you are familiar with, I mean, Jeremy, well, the brother of Bernie Sanders campaigned right. for right. Jeremy Corbyn, so that gets you. And you know Bernie Sanders has just come out in favour of Scottish independence. Talk about interfere. Anyhow, there we are. Let's leave Bernie Sanders to one side. But Labour, he is reinventing himself as a more moderate, pragmatic figure. They are not going to rejoin the European Union and reverse Brexit. But undoubtedly, in terms of the Brexit question, Labour will tack more towards a closer relationship with the European Union than the Conservatives. But the Conservatives are also tacking towards the European Union with Things like and the, and the essential break to get back into a closer relationship was part, was sorting out the, the quote Irish Protocol, which the Windsor framework has resolved. Next thing you know, the Scots are going to annex Sunderland and Monkwearmouth. Exactly. Well, they you know they they do have territorial claims going south. Exactly, but it's I mean you know and I think too there are big factors that are going on around why Britain and the EU are realigning. The Ukraine war has returned Britain sort of to a position of importance within Europe that it hasn't probably seen uh, at least since the Tony Blair years and maybe even not since Thatcher. 
At the same time, the Franco-German alliance and the importance of those countries, I think you've only got to see the joke that, that Chancellor Olaf Scholz makes when he visited Biden the other day. Germany has lost its Russian energy, it's lost its Chinese trade, and it's, and it's been shown up to be ridiculous uh, in relying on, you know, on spending absolutely nothing on defence. The EU is under the influence, and my pet theory is that they sound new Prime Minister of Italy, Georgia Maloney, is tacking the EU in a more sort of pragmatic pro-British direction. And, let, and the final factor... Biden has told the British where to go on an, on an Anglo-American trade deal. And frankly, Richie Sunak, who is a Brexiteer, he has been pushed back towards the Europeans because the Americans have just told him, the, the Biden administration has just told him, we are not interested. So it's amazing that, that Labour finds itself with a 51% intention of voting for them if the general election was being held today. Um, the Conservatives only have 26% yeah. of, of popularity. Uh, Rishi Sunak is underwater also. He only has a 27% favorability. I mean, yeah. is, does, this, does this unfavorability go back to Boris Johnson, or, or where, where does this come from? Well, this is a fast-moving and developing, because I think... The Irish, the, the, the Windsor framework will, will is going to, Sunak had his best week since becoming Prime Minister. Uh, his approval rating will probably increase. But I think you're right, but the, the underlying issue is that the Conservatives as a whole are, are, are underwater in terms of the opinion polls. I don't think we're going to, you know, 20, as you say, 20 to 30 points ahead. And the by-elections that have been fought systematically show a, a narrower, but, but Labour are winning till 10-point swings consistently against the Conservatives. There's the economic problems. There's a perception that the Conservatives, they've been in power since 2010, although not with a working majority until 2019, only to be engulfed by COVID. But they are unpopular, viewed as factional, inward-looking, incompetent, and these factors will remain. However, the Labour Party and Sakir Starmer are not the sort of Tony Blair equivalents. They are, there's a, there's a, his, his shadow cabinet is weak and divided. He, he has a lot of baggage from his own Corbyn era, my prediction, as a, based as a historian, is Labour, particularly helped with the Scottish situation, will probably win a narrow majority in the, in the election which is due in late 2024. But a lot's going to happen between now and then. But I don't think... I, don't, I think Richie Sunak's not going to lift the Conservative Party up. I think people's perceptions after the Liz Truss debacle. And Boris Johnson, whom we can... Well, you know he's a he, he's a, he's a topic of a of a long marathon discussion on his own. These have left a legacy, and I don't know whether you've heard about the leak of a what. Before before we get to that, my yeah. my yeah. co-host Bob Wells has a question for you. Yeah, Adrian, yeah. I, I keyed on your point about uh, Rishi uh, Sunak just had his best week. What made him successful in negotiating with the EU to have this Windsor framework uh, seriously considered? Yeah. 
I know that they, to repeat, I think the EU are much more willing to meet him halfway, which is important, you know, mm. as ever. Success. But what did he do successfully? He didn't, as Boris and Liz Truss would do, leak everything out to his party and try to sort of uh, assemble this conservative coalition. He kept, it didn't leak. He kept quiet. He worked through the issues. He set expectations effectively. Uh, you know, it's it's competence, hard work. Now, there are going to be big issues that are going to come through on it. But, but his attention to detail comes out with these, I mean, his significant success, and I think was, trying to neutralise this European Court of Justice issue. Because you've just got to think about it from a Northern Irish perspective and their allies within the Conservative Party. That Northern Ireland is part of the UK. It, can't, it doesn't vote in any European elections. Yet all of a sudden, this entity is in charge of regulating you know, levels of taxation, sales tax, quality control on products. You, it's a huge presence, utterly unelected. So he focused on winning, on securing a win there mm-hmm. without threatening. And his other tactic was without doing the Boris Johnson, which is the nuclear option of basically ripping up the entire agreement, which isn't the way the EU work. And I think Sunak, Sunak showed clearly, he, he showed an affinity with the with the commission and the way they work in order to get this better deal. Adrian Ebb here. Uh, The Prime Minister told the BBC this morning his deal was a huge step forward for the people of Northern Ireland. Uh, Two-part question. Number one, what about the people of, uh, the rest of the people of Ireland? How does it affect them? Yes, so that's the I was waiting for a second. Okay, in terms of the well, the Republic of, I mean, Republic of Ireland is the fastest growing economy in the EU at the moment. I mean, this really is about trying to sort of deal with the situation in Northern Ireland. Now, in terms of, so I think the Irish and Leo Varadkar, the new prime minister in, in, in Ireland, has certainly is on board with this deal. I think the... The, it will be if we can get the power sharing assembly back and running again, which is a big if. But you know, there's nothing. I mean, minds have been concentrated by some outbreaks of violence in Northern Ireland. The need to get moving on this was paramount. My view is, I think what we've all got to understand is this is not perfect, but it is better than the status quo. Ireland accepts that. Northern Ireland accepts that. European uh, Boris supporters in in the Conservative Party all accept that. We don't like this deal, but it's better than what we currently have. It's an improvement. Well, I guess the best way to the best way to end uh, this uh, segment, uh, Adrian, is to uh, go to the walking punchline, Boris Johnson. Um, the, <laughs> <laughs> the whole thing with, with his with his uh, uh, with the with the member of uh, the parliament who he had doing this report on on Partygate, and now she's working for the yeah. Labour Party as as yes, a great. like yeah. as a, a secretary. Uh, I mean, this guy he's facing perhaps sanctions in a by-election, uh, throwing him temporarily yeah. out of out of the Commons. I mean, 
he has gone from the penthouse to the to the crap house within six months. I mean, it's just unbelievable. The guy's just he can't get can't get around himself. I've never ruled him out. But I think, I mean, actually, the Sue Gray appointment, this is a yeah, civil servant, and, in, and she's just been appointed chief of staff by the leader of the Labour Party, Sakir Starmer. It's an outrage about a politically impartial court. So this put is a hit on her. narrative yeah. of, of, of being a victim. But the WhatsApp leaks, everything is showing how, I mean, he's a narcissist, can't work with people. You know, ignores the device. He's and a bad hairdo. That ignores it. But <laughs> I wouldn't rule him out, particularly, the, the, you know, in the political time frame. The May local elections are coming up. And if the Conservatives do disastrously in those, so these are for councils and, and other, you know, mayors, etc. I mean, Boris, do not rule Boris out. Let, let's not forget four years ago in the election, I think they had the largest majority they'd had in almost forever. Well, since Thatcher, since the great days of Thatcher, and that came, and that came. I mean, they win single digits of Conservatives in the summer of 2019. Right. Right. By December, they won a stonking majority, and I think that's uh, the, the, the ability of Boris to transform everything compared to the sort of steady competence of Sunak. You know, you can you can see that there's if things get really bad. I mean, and he continues to remain very ambitious, but his speech on the protocol, uh, on the framework, he delivered his first public speech. He was sort of half-hearted opposition. He's not ready to take on Sunak. I think he will abstain. Hey, uh, Dr. Adrian Breville, uh, yeah. I hate to do this. We are up against the clock. We want to have you back on. This is going to do it for us today. Best of luck to you, my friend. Many thanks to Bob Wells, Dan Fisk, and Adrian Breville. Great discussions. We're at the end of our time today. Bruce. Insider, check out my Facebook and Twitter accounts for the latest news and my views on the news. All of our Inside Track podcasts are available at Apple Podcasts and at the KVOI website. Until next week, when we have another great show planned with Sixto Molina, we're going to talk about this great Tucsonan's life. For Inside Track, this is Bruce Ash. And Ed Wilkinson. And Bob Wells. Wishing you all a very pleasant good afternoon. We'll see you all in 167 hours. Customers come first at Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. A lot of the, the cities and the counties around have initiatives for artists. I think we're one of the premier artist suppliers for steel. First Saturday of every month, you can come down early and actually go through the scrapyard across the street. It's seven acres of metal. You can walk through with our people and pick out what you want. It's always interesting to see what the artists have done. We've done uh, actually a couple projects with the U of A engineering department and music department where the engineering music students came down together. They had to pick something out of the scrap and uh, they had to build an instrument. And we have one of those in front of the plant. Some really cool things come out of the scrap. Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. Call 209-1579. Stop by the yard. 701 East 36th Street, open Monday through Saturday. This is Ed Wilkinson of Wilkinson Wealth Management reminding you that every good and excellent thing stands moment by moment on the razor's edge of danger and must be fought for, including getting out of debt, building your wealth, and protecting your God-given right. We manage money for gun owners. Let us help you retire comfortably and remain comfortably retired. Call me at 777-1911 or wilkinsonwealth.com.
mgmt.com.